following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. I know that uh, it's Easter Sunday today, and uh, we, this is the day that Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, but I want, if I can, just for a few minutes to go back to Good Friday, okay? Uh, so uh, you put your watches back an hour this morning. I want you just for a few minutes to put your watches back two days, to back to Good Friday. We don't have a Good Friday service at Shaw, so we kind of try to cover both the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus in one service. Uh, so I want to start with that event that happened on that Friday, the death of Jesus, and then we will get to the resurrection. I promise, I know that's why you're here, celebrate the resurrection. We will get to the resurrection, but I want just to take us back to that event that happened that Friday afternoon, 2,000 years ago, uh, on a hill outside Jerusalem where Jesus died. And I want to just ask the question, I want to start by asking the question, what made the death of Jesus unique? What was it that made the death of Jesus unique? If you were there, if you were at the scene of the crucifixion and you were watching this man, I mean, we talk about the crucifixion. We talk about the cross as if it was the only one that ever happened. But of course, by the time Jesus died, there had been thousands of crucifixions. It's estimated that by the time Jesus died, there had been upwards of 30,000 people already crucified. So for us, I mean, crucifixion's are a very unusual, abnormal thing, and, and, and so it should be. But this was just commonplace in the Roman world. People had seen, they happened in public places, these crucifixions. People had seen this stuff all the time. And so in one sense, what happened that Friday afternoon was just another crucifixion. It was just another death of some poor peasant, some rebel who had gotten on the wrong side of the law and been strung up on a cross. And this just happened day in and day out. And many people would have just walked past and barely batted an eyelid. It was just run of the mill. And yet, there's something about that death. There's some, that is perhaps the most well-known, remembered, transformative death of any person ever in human history. That death of that one person stands out and has, has changed the course of civilization has had a dramatic effect on so much of human history, has transformed the lives of millions of people down through the ages. Something happened. Something was unique about that event. Something happened that afternoon. And I want to ask the question, what was unique about the death of Jesus? When we come to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are some pretty significant clues that we get as to what was significant, what was unique, about the death of Jesus. And I want to look at one passage in particular this morning in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 27, you can be turning there already if you've got a Bible. When, when Matthew describes the death of Jesus, he describes the way that around the time that Jesus died, there were these physical events that happened. Aside from the actual crucifixion of Jesus itself, and aside from the words that Jesus himself said, which are also really important, but alongside all of that, there were these other events that happened. And Matthew's the only person to mention some of these events, these physical events, these physical phenomena that took place when Jesus died. And I want to look at these this morning because these events are significant and these events are a way of answering that question. What was unique about the death of Jesus? These events are a way of understanding. They shed light 
on the meaning of the crucifixion. They shed light on the meaning of Jesus' death, if we understand them correctly. And so I want to read this passage to you in Matthew 27, from verse 45. And as I read it, uh, you can follow along, but be listening for these physical signs that accompany the death of Jesus. See if you can listen for what they are and start thinking about what they might mean. So verse 45, Matthew 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. So, uh, I, I don't know whether you caught it, but in there, there were four different signs or four different events that happened around the time that Jesus died. And these are four physical phenomena that happened at the time, but they're not random events. These are not just accidental things that could have just occurred any time, any place. These are very specific events. These are very intentional events. The way that Matthew records them, it's quite clear that these were events that were an act of God. There was God behind these events causing these events. And the purpose of each of these events is to shed some light, to shed some meaning on what is happening as Jesus suffers and dies. So that we see this is not just another crucifixion. This is not just another death of another random person, but this death has significance. One, one person, one writer, has described these physical events as God's own commentary on the cross. Because we've got the words of Jesus talking about his death. But here you have God, the Father, orchestrating these events in order to say, here's what's happening as my son dies on the cross. So I want to look at each of these events because each of them is significant. They're extraordinary events in their own right. But even more stunning is what happens when you put these events together and the tapestry that they create and the story they tell is incredible. So let's walk through these events and have a look at each one. The first one, Matthew records in verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. So Jesus was on the cross, as, as far as we can work out from history, for about six hours on that Friday. This is a real event. This really happened. About six hours on that Friday from around about nine in the morning until mid-late afternoon. They took him down because it was the Passover was coming. For around about six hours, Jesus was, was on that cross. And for three of those hours, so from midday till three in the afternoon, a darkness, a deep, thick darkness came over the land. Now, we don't know whether that darkness was just around the area of Jerusalem, whether it was more widespread than that, we don't know. But we know, and I don't know how, whether you picture it this way, but when Jesus was crucified, even though it was the middle of the day and the sun was highest in the sky, Jesus died in pitch black darkness. Pitch black darkness, this deep gloomy darkness came over all the land. So the question is, what does the darkness mean? 
What's the significance of that? Why would God cause that? I mean, some people say this was a solar eclipse. It was just a random event. It can't have been a solar eclipse because it's always a full moon on this point in the, in the Passover festival. So it wasn't just some random eclipse that happened. This was God somehow, however he did it, whether he worked you know, this way or that way, but he caused darkness to come over the land. What did that mean? What was he saying by causing that to happen? Well, if you go back... In the biblical story, and those of you that know a little bit of the the history of the story that runs through the Bible, think about another time in the biblical story when darkness comes over the land. There's one other time, very, very early on in the Bible, when this darkness comes over an entire land, an entire nation. It's a story all the way back in the book of Exodus. We went through Exodus a few years ago as a church. and It's an amazing story of God rescuing his people. Uh, this was about 1,500 years or so before Jesus, but God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. So totally different time, totally different place. But God miraculously brings his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And one of the ways he does this is by bringing these plagues upon the land of Egypt. He brings 10 plagues upon Egypt. And the ninth of those plagues is darkness. That God, after bringing all these other plagues, frogs are coming up everywhere and the Nile turns to blood and there's hailstones and there's pestilence, there's all this thing. But the, the ninth plague, God brings across the whole land of Egypt this darkness, this dark covering across the land. And it's a sign of God's judgment. That's what the darkness represents. It's a sign that God's judgment has fallen. At that point, upon Egypt, particularly upon Egypt's rulers and leaders, because they had rejected God, they had rebelled against God, they'd refused to listen to anything God was saying through Moses. And so this darkness represents the way, the sobering truth that God's judgment is falling upon a nation because of their sin, because of their turning away from God. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Exodus story, after the ninth plague of darkness, you know what the tenth plague is, the tenth and final plague? the death of the firstborn son. All the sons, the firstborn sons in Egypt, their lives are taken. It's a horrible story. There's a lot of questions around that. I know we're not going to dive into that this morning, but that's the sequence of events in the Exodus story, the darkness followed by the death of the firstborn. Now, you're already putting it together in your minds, aren't you? Come back to the death of Jesus. Come back to Matthew 27. Look at the sequence of events. You have the darkness that comes over the land from noon until three in the afternoon. And what's the very next thing that happens? The death of God's firstborn son. The death of the firstborn. So it's the Exodus story happening all over again in a new way. Being reenacted, in a sense, in a new way. And God is saying, this is what is happening. Think back to that story because it'll give you a clue as to what's happening right here with my son. That darkness that came over the land when Jesus dies, it represents the ultimate judgment of God falling, not just upon a nation, not just on like one nation like Israel or Egypt, but upon all humanity. God's judgment for our sin, your sin, my sin, our wrongdoing, our failure, our rejection of God. All of that is finally falling. The judgment of God is coming. But it doesn't rest upon those who deserve it, you and me. It falls upon the firstborn son. It falls upon God's own firstborn son. Not all firstborn children now, but one particular son, the only son, the only child of God the Father, Jesus Christ. The one man who didn't deserve it. But he takes upon himself the fullness of the judgment of God so we don't have to carry it. 
You see what's happening? You see what the darkness represents? The judgment of God has been poured out. The judgment of God has fallen, but it hasn't fallen on us. Thank God. It's fallen upon His Son. Jesus takes upon Himself God's judgment for our sin, so we don't have to bear the consequences of it. He takes God's judgment upon Himself. He carries the weight of the world's sin. He's forsaken by the Father. He's alienated from God, and He does this for us, so we don't have to carry the judgment of God. So that first sign of darkness it's, it's the most sobering, it's the most solemn of all the signs, and it represents the way God's judgment comes across all humanity, but is ultimately channeled into one person, the innocent Son of God, Jesus, as He hangs upon the cross. Now, keep that in your minds as we look at the second sign, because you've got to follow the, the, the progression, and you start to see the whole story unfold. The second sign happens, and it's recorded in verse 51. At that moment, that's the moment Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. So the second sign that happens is this curtain is torn. And if you have any uh, four or five-year-olds this morning out in base camp, they are learning this particular story. They're focusing in. There's a wonderful children's book uh, called, I think, The Garden, The Temple, and The Curtain. And it tells the Easter story, but it focuses on this event of the curtain in the temple tearing. And so if you've got kids out there, ask them about it when you, um, when you see them. So this temple was in Jerusalem, and this was the most sacred place for Jewish people. Still is. You go to the Temple Mount today, it is the most sacred place. Uh, because it was the, in the temple that the special presence of God resided in this inner room in the temple called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, the presence of God dwelt with his people. I mean, God's everywhere. God's presence is everywhere. But he was especially present in this particular location. And separating the most holy place in the temple from everything else was this huge curtain. And I mean, it was a massive curtain. Don't think like the curtains in your lounge. This was huge. This was several stories high. This was several inches thick. You, you couldn't possibly tear it with human hands. This massive curtain. And, and the great thing about this children's book is it describes that curtain as a big keep-out sign. It says, for generations, since that temple was built, the curtain went in there, and it was basically the equivalent of a big keep-out sign. God might as well have written those words on it. Keep out. And it sent a message to everyone through the centuries. God's presence is off limits. God's with us in a sense. We know he's in there. But we can't get to him. Only one person, the high priest, could ever get into that place once a year under very strict conditions. But for everyone else, God's presence was off limits. Keep out. And so can you see what's happening when Jesus dies and this curtain in the temple is torn in two and it's torn in two from top to bottom? Just, just to emphasize the fact this is not a human act human being would try and tear it from the bottom up, but this is the hand of God tearing that curtain from top to bottom, and it represents the way that keep out sign is being ripped up. It's like taking that, that sign saying keep out and just screwing it up and throwing it away. For the first time ever, human beings can come into the presence of God because of the death of Jesus, because of Christ's death. And you think about it, this connects to the first sign, doesn't it? Because Jesus took God's judgment upon himself now, that, that sin was the barrier between us and God. And now with that sin gone, the judgment is taken, we can enter into the presence of God. We can experience 
God's presence. We can have relationship with God. We can have community with God. We can connect personally with God. We can experience His presence in our lives now through Jesus. We don't need another mediator. We don't need another institution. We don't need another person between us and God. We have Jesus, and through Him now we can directly experience the presence of God. This is the great result of Jesus' death for us, that now with sin dealt with, with judgment taken care of, we can freely access the unrestricted, uninhibited presence of God in our lives. That's what the tearing of the curtain represents. So we've got God's judgment with the darkness, We've got the tearing of the curtain representing now on the other side of that. We can enter in. We can experience the presence of God. And then the third sign in the same verse, verse 51, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. At the time that Jesus died, there was an almighty earthquake. Don't always think about this, don't always hear about this, but this is one of the natural phenomena that happened at the moment Jesus died. This huge earthquake, so severe apparently, that rocks split, rocks were cracked open. So this was a major turbulent earthquake that happened. Now what does the earthquake represent? I'm a little bit cautious in talking about this because I think sometimes Christians have an unfortunate tendency to take natural events like earthquakes and read all sorts of stuff into them when they happen today. You know, I mean, it was sad after the Christchurch earthquake to see the way some Christians piped up and talked about the earthquake. It's a sign of God's judgment upon Christchurch and all of these. It was just wacky stuff. You know, there's nothing in the Bible about God's judgment on Christchurch. Uh, it's, not, it's not there. But this particular earthquake is specifically recorded in Scripture. And when you have an event like that, that accompanies the death of Jesus, and it's surrounded by other specific signs that obviously carry meaning and carry weight, then it is appropriate to infer that there is real significance to this. There is something that this earthquake is communicating. Now, this earthquake relates back to a prophecy in the book of Haggai. You don't need to turn back there, but let me just read it to you. This obscure little prophet in the Old Testament, Haggai. But here's what he says in Haggai 2.6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while... I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. So it's prophecy about God shaking the earth, God shaking the cosmos, really. And that prophecy of Haggai, it points beyond the death of Jesus. Ultimately, it points to a time that is still in the future. It points to a day that is still future, even to our own day. A day when one day, God is going to take this physical world, He's going to take this physical creation, and He is going to shake it. There is going to be this almighty, turbulent shaking of the heavens and the earth. Now, I don't know whether this is literally going to be a catastrophic earthquake or whether this is just a symbolic way of talking about what God's going to do, but He is going to take hold of this creation and He is going to shake it like shaking out a rug like shaking out a mat, and he's going to shake it until all of the impurity flies off it, until all of, the, all of the dirt, all of the filth, all the evil, everything that's contaminated this world, until all of that is shaken away. And then what's left will be God's perfected creation. What's left will be this pure creation, the new heavens and the new earth. It's not that God's going to just destroy the world. He called this world good. He's not given up on it, but he is going to shake it. It's like a purging 
It's like a cleansing, the shaking of all things, getting rid of everything that shouldn't be there. And then what remains is this beautiful new creation, this perfected creation. And then, the Bible says, then the one who is desired by nations, that's Jesus, it's talking about Jesus, then the one desired by nations will come. Once creation is restored and perfected, then the king will come and he will inhabit this earth and fill this earth with the glory of God. Now, that's a future promise. That's something that we believe is still sitting out there. It's something that God really is going to do one day. But you come all the way back to the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and you've got this earthquake. And it's like a sign that's saying that future has been secured at the cross. That future has been sealed at the cross. God's yet to bring it about. It's our future hope. We're looking to it. We know it's coming. But that was secured at the cross. The death of Jesus sealed that day. Sealed that day when creation itself will be set free. And the earthquake is like a little foretaste of that. Like a little taste, a little advanced sign of the earth being shaken as this purging, as this precursor to the earth being renewed and transformed and redeemed and resurrected when Jesus comes again. And so you see the way the cross is not just about the present. It's not just about what happens to us and to the world in the present. It's also about what happens in the future. The cross also secures this future for us that God's yet to unfold, but it was all sealed at the cross. It all happened. It was all purchased at the cross. So we've got judgment. We've got the the sign of darkness, God's judgment upon sin. We've got the curtain tearing. The presence of God is available to us now. We've got the earthquake. The creation itself is going to be renewed and restored because of what Christ has done on the cross. And then finally, the strangest one of all, this bizarre thing that happens, and Matthew is the only writer in the Bible to talk about it, and it is truly weird, but here's what happens. In verse 52, And the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Does anyone else, when they hear that verse being read out, think of Michael Jackson's thriller video? Is that, it was the first thing in my mind. You know, you just imagine these people coming out, getting and starting line dancing with a thriller song. That's what it sounds like happening here. All these zombies are coming out, coming to life. I mean, this is weird stuff. Matthew's the only person to mention it. There's all sorts of questions around this that we wish we had answers to that we just don't. Uh, who were these people that suddenly walked out of these tombs, these graveyards around Jerusalem? Suddenly you've got dead people coming back to life. I mean, the, the Bible says these were holy people. Uh, for all we know, they could have been some of the people we read about in the Old Testament. I mean, who's to say that King David wasn't one of these people? Who's to say Elijah? Wouldn't that have been amazing? King David walks out of his tomb. What's up? I mean, it would have been incredible. We don't know. We don't know. But what happened to them then? I mean, there's no, there's no other mention of these people. Did they walk back into the tombs after a little while and the show's over? Or did they maybe ascend directly to heaven? We don't know. We wish we knew. But I think the fact we don't know means that none of that's the point. That's all speculation. The more important thing is what does all this mean? What's the point of these dead people coming to life when Jesus is, uh, is crucified? Well, Let me read you a verse from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep just means died. So now we come to the resurrection. And what Paul is saying is that when Jesus was raised from the dead, 
The significance of that event was not just the miracle of Jesus himself being raised, but what it symbolized for the rest of us. That Jesus' resurrection is described as the first fruits. The first fruits. And, you know, it's like seeing the first grape appear on the grapevine in season. And it's a sign that many more clusters of grapes are on their way. Many more, a lot more fruit is coming. That's the beauty of the resurrection that we're celebrating this morning. That's the significance of this event. That what God did for Jesus on Easter Sunday morning, he promises he will do for all of us one day. And Christ's resurrection guarantees it. That God raised Jesus from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. And he says to us, everybody who belongs to Jesus now is similarly going to be raised to new life when Jesus returns. We're all going to be resurrected one day. And again, you see the the connection between these second two signs. You've got the earthquake, the physical creation is going to be renewed. And then you've got the dead people being raised, symbolizing the fact that we are going to be raised to new life. We're going to be resurrected with bodies that enable us to inhabit this new world that's been created, that's been renewed by God. We're going to be given these perfected bodies free from all the disease and sickness and decay and blemishes that we have in our present bodies. We are going to be raised to new life. We're going to be given bodies that resemble Jesus' own resurrection body, transformed to become like his body, and we will then inhabit this incredible new world that God is going to bring about with Jesus as our king and the whole earth filled with the glory of God. It all fits together, this beautiful picture of the renewal of creation and the restoration and the resurrection of humanity. And so you come back to these dead people that were raised, they are again like a little advanced sign of that future resurrection that is coming. And this is why the order of things is so important. Even though they were raised to life when Jesus died, you notice, Matthew says, that they didn't appear to people until Jesus was resurrected. His resurrection is the foundation. His resurrection is the the, the ground of it all. And because Christ has been raised, we will one day be raised. These people who came out of the tomb walking around, they're a sign of that future resurrection that awaits all of us. And again, that was purchased at the cross. It's not something God's just going to think up in the future. It's not some uncertain thing. That was secured at the cross. That was sealed at the cross and at the empty tomb. The death and resurrection of Jesus make possible, they guarantee, our future resurrection one day. Jesus' resurrection is like the down payment of our own resurrection. His resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. And those dead people walking around Jerusalem that Friday, that Sunday, they are signs of what one day awaits all of us. Resurrection, renewal, new life, new bodies, and a new home. Now, you step back from all of this. Each of those signs are amazing. They're extraordinary. But already you're connecting the dots and you see the story that each of these signs is is contributing to and this incredible story that that fits together with all of them. When you put all four of those signs together, when you put them together, they tell the whole story. They tell the whole story of the Bible. They tell this huge story of which the Easter story is the central part. You've got the judgment of God, the darkness, God's judgment upon sin. The problem we all face, the problem that the cross addresses is the problem of human sin. But Jesus dies, takes that judgment upon himself, and so you have the curtain torn reflecting that we can all come freely into the presence of God. We can be reconciled to God now. And then not only are there the present 
experience of having God's presence within us, we have the future hope of creation being restored, that's the earthquake, and our own resurrection one day when Christ returns. That's these dead people being raised. And so together, these events, when you string them together, they tell this huge, big drama of salvation that is going on. It's like God was, was writing the story in the sky and on the earth and in the temple and in the graveyards outside Jerusalem. God was writing his story that day. He was writing this huge story. He was saying, this is what this event means. This is what is happening as my son suffers and bleeds and dies. There is a huge story going on here. There is far more significance than what you might just see watching another crucifixion happen outside Jerusalem. And what's the significance of all this for us? How do we respond to these events? How do we respond to the, the death and resurrection of Jesus ourselves? Let me read you one person's response. It's in the very next verse. Matthew records it. And maybe this is a clue as to how we can respond in our lives. Verse 54. When the centurion and all those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. You've got this Roman centurion here. And he sees some of these signs. He actually witnesses some. He kind of witnessed all of them because he didn't see the, the curtain in the temple. Uh, but he sees some. And his response is to say, surely he was the son of God. I think sometimes Christians get a little bit overexcited about this Roman centurion. And we look at that and we go, well, look at this guy. He became a Christian. That's amazing. I don't think he quite became a Christian. For him to say, surely this was the son of God, for a Roman to say that, he may just be saying this is someone who's used by God in some way. He was associated with one of the Roman gods. We don't know. This is, he's not saying Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, this isn't the Council of Nicaea. This is still Jesus in the first century. But nevertheless, if nothing else, what this Roman centurion is saying is there's something going on here. Something's happening. There's something more than just another crucifixion. I mean, this guy would have lived through, this Roman centurion probably was responsible for hundreds if not thousands of crucifixions. But here he is saying something's happening. This is not just another day in the office for him. Something is going on. There is some significance to this. God is involved in this event in a way that is absolutely unique. And his response, I think, should cause us each to ask, how are we going to respond to this? What are we going to say? We think about these signs. We think about that event, the death of Jesus, at the center of it all. We think about the empty tomb a couple of days later. We've each got to ask the question, how are we going to respond to that? And you can push it aside and you can walk out of here and not think about it again and just write it all off as fairy tales or whatever. And that, that, if, you, if you want to do that, okay. But you maybe find yourself responding a bit like that Roman centurion and saying, you know, there's something, something in this. I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something going on in this event. I want to just encourage you, if, if that's you, keep asking Keep searching. Keep looking. Don't just sort of push it to the back of your head. If you've got that sense and you know there's something, there's something to this, keep asking questions. Keep talking to people about it. Keep on that journey. Keep thinking about this. And I believe you will find the God that you're looking for. You'll find the God who performed these incredible signs. You will find the God who gave his son for you, gave his son to die and be raised again. Keep on that journey. Come and talk to us, one of the leaders afterwards. We'd love to talk with you, love to pray with you about just keeping on the journey, keeping on exploring what happened. And if you're here and you know all this stuff already and you've heard this story and this is your 75th Easter service and you've just done this all before, for us, the challenge is 
to try and recapture some of the wonder, isn't it? Because we can all sit here and yawn, frankly. It's like, oh, Easter, heard it, done it, what's new? We've got to put ourselves in the shoes of that Roman centurion, don't we? And look up at the cross and try and recapture, as if hearing it and seeing it for the first time, recapture the wonder of it, recapture the horror of it. The cross is supposed to horrify us before it blesses us, to recapture the significance of what happened. And then to say, with the fullness of those words, surely this was and is the Son of God. Our response should be to worship. Our response should be to surrender, to lay our lives down all over again and say, Jesus, I want this big story to be my story. I want this great big story you've written in the sky and on the earth. I want to, I want to live in that story. I want that present to be my present. I want that future to be my future. Let's come back again to the cross and marvel at what the Son of God has done for us there. Let's pray. God, we do stand amazed. Lord, those of us that have heard the story many times before and those of us that are maybe hearing it for the first time, we are just amazed, God, at what happened. That one event, one Friday afternoon, could change so much. But God, we want to be God, we want to be challenged by how that might change us, not just how it changes history, not just by how it changes things outside of ourselves, but how it changes us. And we want to pray, God, that you would transform our lives by the power of the cross and the power of Jesus' resurrection. Your word says that the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now gives life to our bodies. You give us life. You give us resurrection life, even in the present, as you make us new, as you give us eternal life, as you transform our hearts. It's like rising from the dead. So, Father, we pray this morning you'd raise us to life all over again and lead each of us. Lord, wherever we are on our faith journey, wherever we are on our spiritual journey, would you lead us to the cross this morning? Lead us to the empty tomb. Lead us to lay our lives down again and surrender to you, the one who has given everything for us. We thank you, God. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.